fairy tales, children's stories about magical and imaginary beings and lands, often the first lens we give young minds to view the world they live in. Many assume these are fictional stories to be taken lightly, but what if there is more to them? This is a podcast where we'll tell you some myths and tales that you thought you knew, and we'll show you how they are connected to real-life crimes today. This is Scary Tales, where the stories of your childhood meet real-life horror. We'll discuss how the light and happy tales of youth actually have a darker history to them. We'll also discuss true crime today and some of the eerie connections they have to the myths and legends of yesterday. Tune in for a new tale every other Tuesday. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, and anywhere you stream your podcast. It's us. Your your scary tales sing along songs. There you go. Ooh, I love today. Wait, okay. I'm I, I'm I'm both excited about today and a little bit surprised that you were willing to do this as an episode. It's not scary, in the sense of dogs dying. But but you are, you got you've got a soft spot for the animals. In I the, do. In the second episode, in the second part. It gets a little, just a little sad. Just gets a little, but not a lot. Not a lot. Not yeah. hundred and one dogs dog, die. Dog deaths. Yeah. If you don't know what we're talking about, we're doing the one hundred and one Dalmatians, which is an adorable freaking story. I have a very vivid memory of when I was younger, uh, going to get a shot at the doctor's office, and my parents tried to like bribe me or whatever. With, you know, like, oh, you did such a great job. And they said, what do you want to do? And I wanted to go watch 101 Dalmatians in theaters. That's my girl. And I guess it was like a weird time of day or whatever. Like, I don't know if we went to the doctor in the morning and went to a movie at 10 a.m., but we were the only ones in the theater. Watching 101 Dalmatians. Watching 101 Dalmatians with a, a, probably with a a Band-Aid on my shoulder and a sucker in my mouth. Mm. But how were you watching it? Because it came out in 1961. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's just a false memory. It was like at the... (laughs) <laughs> that that's literally just a memory i have <laughs> facts maybe they were maybe you went to the dollar theater and it was they Probably. were playing old movies i miss the dollar theater but also if that story is true how did you know that they were playing 100 how were they were know. replaying it i have no idea i just remember that that's my that's where my brain goes i need you to clarify that with your parents i will i'll ask him it was probably a totally different movie your past that, life in 1960 yeah i'm actually really old that and um my, the other thing I really like to get was uh, those milky gel pens. Do you remember those? Duh. Stationary is my life. The, those those were my, like, you had to get a shot at the doctor treat. Mm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I do need to probably deep dive into that. Uh, sometimes, I, you know, we, we create these false memories in our brains. That's why we do. And that's why eyewitness testimonies aren't great. Yeah. But that's another story for another day. So, like I said, it was <laughs> the movie did come out in 1961, not in 1995 or whenever you remember um disney summer you know we got to do it so there the movie's about dalmatians and pongo and perdita have 15 puppies cruella Deville comes along she's this evil lady and she attempts to buy them from their owners roger and anita radcliffe and when the couple refuses to sell cruella steals the puppies she she wants to make fur coats out of them and it is soon discovered that she has been rounding up the Dalmatians in order to make these fur coats. But her plot is foiled by Pongo, Perdita, and their other animal friends. 
and they got to save the puppies. Yep, and they save the day. And you eventually figure out where the 101 of them come. There's a, that's a lot of puppies. That's a lot the of dream. Puppies. Dog farm is my dream. So, just some fun facts before we get into the story behind the story. Someone, not me. Not you. Not us. It really wasn't me. <laughs> it sounds like something I would do. Sat down and counted, and there are 6,469,952 spots in the film. I wonder what that sounds like a quarantine activity. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. what possessed somebody to do that? I'm obsessed with Disney and dogs and I didn't feel the need to do that. So all of the dogs barks were actually recorded by humans. And that just, (laughs) why I'm I'm not ever going to be able to listen to it the same again, but Clarence Nash, who was the voice actor behind Donald duck was behind the sounds of the barks in 101 Dalmatians. He's like, I do ducks. I do dogs. (laughs) He does it all. Uh, third fun fact, the dogs are actually black and gray in the movie, like a shade of gray. It looks white to me, but apparently it's gray. And the animators opted for gray because white, like stark white, would have been too bright on the screen. And the dogs wouldn't have looked good in any of the scenes with snow. Listen, so. if you've ever painted a house and you've gone and looked at paint samples. Mm-hmm. You, a million and one shades of white. You know there are a million and one shades of white. And, yeah. and they're different when you hold them up next to each other. They sure are. So... All those Dalmatians you've seen, they're actually mm-hmm. not white. They're gray. All gray. But anyway, on to the story behind the story. And I love it. And it's so adorable. And it I, is. It's And cute. I read it, and it was very precious. And I recommend that you all go read it. But what am I talking about? Go ahead, Hannah. So, I, and I will I will admit, too, that this is one that I, I, I'm an English teacher. I know and assume that 99% of movies are originally books. This is one that kind of sounded like it could have just been a a movie. A movie. You know, yeah. like, you know, because it, it is so different than than the normal classic kind of fairy tale, fairy tale story, if you will. Mm-hmm. But, so what you maybe didn't know is that this famous Disney movie was inspired by the adorable 1956 children's novel, The 101 Dalmatians, by Dottie Smith. Mm-hmm. So by the mid-1950s, Dottie Smith was... I think you say Dottie. It, oh, Dottie. I like Dottie better, but... Yeah. I think that would be like D-O-T-T-I-E. I've heard it. Do- I'm pretty sure it's Dodie. You like Dodie better? Yeah. Dodie Bird. That makes her sound dumb. Anytime I, my, I'm i being like, I say something stupid, my mom calls me a Dodo Bird. So, And they're extinct. So, <laughs> damn. Thanks. Well, she apparently was not a uh, Dodo Bird because she was a very established writer living in London. She, in fact, had written several plays and even published her first novel, I Capture the Castle, in 1949. I might go read that. So she she is, I think I have it. I have a copy. You can, yeah, I'll bring it to you next time. I'm not surprised. Uh, yeah, of course not. So Dodie was a dog lover. You, you can assume that. Mm-hmm. But she especially loved Dalmatians. She had a bunch of cute Dalmatians. Not not 101, but she did have a lot. Mm -hmm. She supposedly came up with the idea for the novel when a friend of hers saw some of her dogs and said, those dogs would make a lovely fur coat. And to that, I'd say, get out of my house, never return. Well, apparently that friend must have inspired Cruella, so Uh probably not. Well, but she didn't. Because we know who inspired Cruella. We'll get to that. She inspired the story, but, Mm -hmm. you know, that does play into the character later. Pongo, so the main the main Dalmatian in the book, was named after Dodie's own dog. I think Pongo's a cute name. It was very cute. But as we normally talk about, the original story, even though it was a children's book, was a little bit darker than what Disney does. What else would you expect here we, on Scary Tales? I mean, you should know at this point that that's just 
it's always a little bit darker. Mm-hmm. So into the story then. In London, there lives a married dog couple, Pongo and Mrs. They live with their human pets, the Deerleys. I think that's freaking adorable that they call them their human pets. Yeah. I hope I hope that's how our dogs picture us. I absolutely as know the, how as, the cats picture their, us. Oh, 100%. the cats are well. The cats are like these are my human servants. Oh, we gotta do Aristocat. Mm-hmm. That is one of our yep. on the list. The Deerleys are quite wealthy because Mister Deerley solved the country's national debt problem. Good for him. Easy it, task. I did it sure. on a Tuesday. His reward was that he did not have to pay the income tax for the rest of his life. I would just be like, I want a million dollars, thanks. Yeah. He was like, I just don't want to pay taxes anymore. Besides the dogs and their humans, Nanny Cook and Nanny Butler also lived in the home. That was me. Nanny Butler. (laughs) Nanny Butler. (laughs) Name bank. Mm -hmm. Soon they find out that Mrs. is pregnant with puppies, which enters Cruella DeVille. She (laughs) She was described as a tall woman. She was wearing the very tight-fitting emerald satin dress. She had, quote, ropes of rubies, a white mink coat, ruby red shoes, just very very lavish. Very lavish. Here's a quote from the book that says, She had dark skin, black eyes with a tinge of red in them, and a very pointed nose. Her hair was parted severely down the middle, and one half of it was black and the other white. So the, the classic. A look. The look. Um, which also, you know, the pointed nose and the red in the eyes, very villain, very mm-hmm. like classic villainous thing. Mrs. Dearly knew Cruella from school because she had gotten expelled for, quote, drinking ink. What a, what a I thing. I don't even know what. I don't even know. Uh, it'll come know up what, later too. Yeah. Drinking ink. Come to find out. Cruella is married to a furrier, so someone who who inspired her obsession with furs, and she would even wear them around in the summer. Which, side note, she's also obsessed with pepper being on her food, even on her ice cream. Yeah, because there's this one part of the book where the dearlies go over for a dinner party, and this is where Cruella's going to try and convince her to give them the puppies. And they just, there's so much pepper on everything. And that was just such an odd. It's like you with mustard. Yellow, yellow mustard. We we went to a restaurant tonight to eat, and the restaurant didn't have any mustard. And they That's looked at me crazy. Wanted. That's all she wanted. Cruella. Well, so side, back up. She sees, uh, Cruella Deville sees Mrs. and Pongo, and she says how they will make lovely fur coats. So, again, we can, kind of talked about that. Um, the, the real author, life inspiration. The real life, the author's friend who said that. Mm-hmm. Cruella is there when the puppies are born, and she's very angry because all the puppies end up coming out white, which I guess is apparently normal for Dalmatians. Yeah, they all come out white, and they and develop their spots, their spots develop over time. Later. So she suggests that the puppies be drowned because they didn't have their spots yet, and she didn't know this. Mm-hmm. She also says, so here, this is a nice quote for you. Just a nice little... She says, quote, I've drowned dozens and dozens of my cat's kittens. She always chooses some wretched alley cat for their father, so they're never worth keeping. Mm. Ugh. Dark. It is dark. Mrs. eventually has 15 puppies, not 101. She has 15, and Mrs. Dearly tells Corella that she can't have any of the puppies, and this obviously makes Corella very upset. Mm-hmm. The vet suggested that 
the puppies would need an extra, quote, foster mom because 15 puppies would be too many for Mrs. to feed. Or kind of like a wet nurse. Yeah. Which I don't, I guess that's probably a real thing with the animals. Yeah. And I did read that 15 puppies, it's that not unheard like a, of with Dalmatians, but it is a lot. But like some lot. do have litters that large. The, a farmer's Dalmatian named Perdita has a litter of puppies who he sells. She's distraught because she's because the puppies are sold and escapes from the farm to look for all her puppies, which I don't even want to talk about that. That breaks my heart. Right. Mrs. Dealey finds Perdita on the road and takes her home. And since, you know, just her puppies had just been taken from her, um, she is able to help feed the Dealey's 15 Dalmatian puppies. There you go. So a little happy story for there after two weeks though the puppies eventually finally begin to develop their spots they develop their personalities they're given names the runt of the litter is actually the prettiest puppy and she's named cad pig because apparently that's what you i guess it was the run of the litter because cad pig is what you call the runt of a pig butter but which is confusing because these are these puppies are and not puppies, pigs not pigs cad puppy cad pig's not in the movie no uh, in the movie, it's the dog's name is Lucky, mm-hmm. which is a lot cuter than Cad Pig. But in the book, Lucky is a completely separate dog who is the smartest of them all. Um, you've got the other dogs like Roly Poly and Patch. Yep. Penny all, in the movie. All dog names that will mm-hmm. save for all the dogs you rescue on your dog farm. Yep. While the Dearlies are out on a walk, Cruella's henchmen... Saul and Jasper, so not Horace and Jasper like the nope, movie, not Horace, which I'm like, well, I don't, I don't understand why people change things like, like that, like little minimal like, things. You like, keep Jasper, but you just had a thing against Saul, right? Did you know a Saul and you mm-hmm. don't want to offend him? So they they steal the puppies from the backyard while they're out there playing to help find their dogs. Pongo and Mrs. resort to the gossip chain known as Twilight Barking. That's what my dogs do in the middle of the night. <laughs> You know when they all get riled up and they start barking? And, and everybody gets so mad, and I'm like, they're dogs. Mm-hmm. Through this method, their me- their message reaches a sheepdog about 60 miles outside of London. Just like the movie. Just like the movie. The Colonel. One day, when he is walking past an old ab- abandoned house, he stumbles a- upon a white bone with SOS written on it. Because dogs can read. And write. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And they know what the, these abbreviations mean. Mm-hmm. So he finds out that the house is full of the Dalmatian puppies and reports back to Pongo and Missus via the Twilight Bark. Via the Twilight Bark. Maybe that's what maybe that's what your dogs are trying to tell you. Yeah, yeah. That puppies are missing. Yeah. I'll listen from now on. The quote abandoned mansion is Hell Hall and is owned by the Deville family. And Pongo and Missus set out on this long journey to to rescue their puppies. The legend goes that the Deville man, the Devilles bought the mansion from a farmer named Hill who had gotten into debt, and his plan was to turn the farm into a castle. But he had only gotten so far before the event, the villagers nearby grew concerned about the quote screams and maniacal laughter that they heard behind the gates. What was going on in there? Because that that doesn't sound like just. Sounds like a children's story to me. Right. That doesn't sound like a children's birthday party. Mm-hmm. Pongo and Mrs. get lucky when the puppies are let out into the yard to play, except that they quickly notice that it isn't just their 15 puppies. It's close to 100. Yeah. So their puppies are not the only ones. Mm-hmm. Before the puppies could be rescued, though, Cruella arrives and says that the police are on their trail and that the puppies need to be killed tonight. 
Here's a question I have that I just thought about. They're puppies, so their coats are not going to be worth anything because they're tiny. Is it going to be a baby coat? Maybe that's why she needed 100. True. Maybe she she needed 100 to to make Mm -hmm. up for the, the size. But this is this moment is where the famous line, which are both in the book and the movie, comes where Cruella says, "Poison them, drown them, hit them on the head. Have you any chloroform in the larder?" To which Saul responds, "No," and no ether either. She's like, "Poison them, drown them, hit them on the head." In the movie, and he's like, "No," he's like, and yeah, "No we- either, either." <laughs> he, he, he's he's a, good, a smart one. Uh huh. Saul and Jasper get distract get distracted by the TV while Pongo and Mrs. are helping their puppies escape. So they're good henchmen over here. And then just like in the movie, the dogs sleep in the barn for the night. Mm-hmm. With all the cows and the cows give them their milk. Then the next day, they make their long journey back home, which includes them running into a band of gypsies who are known for stealing these beautiful dogs. They get trapped, but they escape. Just a little side note that the movie didn't include. They said, we'll save that for Notre Dame. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll make a different movie out of that. At some point, though, they, they come across Cruella's house where they see her cat, the one like the one that her she kept drowning the kittens. Mm-hmm. While Cruella and her husband are out to dinner, the cat sneaks the pack of Dalmatians into the home where they proceed to tear all of her coats to shreds. Mm. She's gonna not going to like that. Of course. They finally make it back to, to their home where they bark at the dealer's window until they come to the door, which the dealers are confused because the dogs are covered in black soot, which that's in the movie just, too. Yeah, just like the movie. So they left as white dogs and mm-hmm. they come back covered in black soot. Um, and they attempt to shoo them away because they don't recognize them. Right. But Mrs. and Pongo and all 97 puppies at this mm-hmm. point let themselves in. They roll on the floor, they get the soot off, and then that's when the de- the dearlies realize that it was their missing Dalmatians plus ninety just, plus ninety seven minus fifteen. Just, just a couple. Right. Which which fun twist, among the ninety seven puppies, eight were Perdita's missing puppies. So the farm dogs, so the, the wet farm, nurses. Yeah. She got them back. I know. That's so sweet. Redemption. Mm-hmm. Carilla's cat also moves in with them. Because why not? Because everybody just rescue everybody, mm-hmm. and then apparently all the coats that the animals destroyed were not paid for yet. So now the Devilles are in even more financial ruin, or, and they have to flee London, and they're just in debt and mm-hmm. running away, running from the law. And the and the shock of find her coats were all destroyed. So the shock of finding her coats made the white side of Cruella's hair turn black, and the black side turn green. Just a little punk look. Uh, yeah, I don't for a punk woman. I don't, I don't understand that, but she probably, she probably hated it. Mm-hmm. So if you've been trying to keep up, at this point, we have 99 dogs. So 97 of them were puppies. And they needed more space. Because mm-hmm. they were just living, you know, those little London yeah, the, townhouses. Right. Can't fit that many dogs they don't, in there. That's, they need a dog farm. Mm-hmm. So the dearlies buy and renovate Hell Hall and hopefully rename it. They paint the house white, they paint the windows black, and so then the house ends up looking like a Dalmatian, which is the 100th Dalmatian. Mm-hmm. But we still got one more. But there has to be 101, which is Perdita's, fa- the father of her puppies, her puppy daddy. Prince. Prince. 
So he gets joint. He joins too, and they all live happily ever after. And that's one hundred and one. One oh one. What's sad though is, so after the release, tons of people went out and bought Dalmatian Dalmatian puppies because mm-hmm. they, you know, of course they would, but they didn't realize how high energy they were, and then. Mm-hmm a ton of Dalmatian puppies ended up being abandoned in the countryside or in pounds. So it's almost like, yeah. it's almost like the movie did the, the opposite of what it was trying yeah. to do. That's why I, when I, you know, my, my parents dog the border collie, mm-hmm. I would post videos of her doing all these cool tricks and stuff. And people would text and be like, who or message and be like, who, what kind of dog is that? Blah, blah, blah. Which first of all, how do you not want to know what a border collie yeah. is? Get out of here. But, um, I would have to tell them like, they're cool, but they're also the yeah. number one smartest dog breed, and they will drive you up a wall. Yeah, yeah. This is not a, this is not a couch dog. Mm-hmm. Intelligent dogs require so much work, right? And I think a lot of I think this happened a lot too, like during you know during the COVID and everything. And so a lot of people were like, "Oh, we need something to do. We need a dog." And then once their lives like returned somewhat back to normal, they realized how much work it was. So mm-hmm. do- dogs are a lot of work. They're not for everybody. No, especially ninety nine of them. So, yeah. mm-hmm. just. Well, forewarning there. Yep. So there's a little bit about the story behind the story, but then there's a person behind the story as well. Mm-hmm. And she's a character. She is. She inspired Cruella DeVille. She did. And her name is Tallulah Bankhead. I love the name Tallulah. I know. I kind of do too, mm-hmm. actually. And we also love Tallulah because she was born in Alabama. There you go. Roll Tide. So the animators were picturing her when they when they created the famous villain. So Tallulah Bankhead. She was born in Alabama. She was a theater actress with very expressive facial expressions. Like, you knew exactly. She, she was a face actor. Mm-hmm. Like Cruella, uh, Bankhead was... She was tall and thin. She was skin and bone. She was a chain smoker. Um, Because remember, remember, uh, Cruella had that long cigarette stick. Mm -hmm. What is that? It's like a, it holds the cigarette. Cigarette's like a, it's the same size or length. I don't know. It's like holding your pinky up. Yeah, I think it's just a fancy thing. But that that smoking is what left them with that raspy, villainous kind of voice. Like the sexy villain voice almost. However, Tallulah Bankhead had a little bit of a different story for her raspy voice. She she did also chain smoke, but mm-hmm. she had a more to her story. As a child, um, she was hit with the illness like the whooping cough and mumps. She had different illnesses just growing up, mm-hmm. which is part of what made her voice hoarse. So I don't really know why she decided to grow up and smoke. But it's what you did back then. It really yeah it, it is. She was also known to be a defiant child. And uh, biographer David Brett recalled that she, quote, took to bullying her sister and most of the rest of her class. This was the only part that she, like, comes like it's kind of bad. The rest of it, I'm just like, you go to Lula Bankhead. You do well, the dang thing. You run the show. That's the other thing. I mean, I mean, her bullying her siblings and classmates, you know, not great. But also, I mean, I feel like all siblings fight. Mm-hmm. Or, or have claimed that their siblings have bullied them at some point. I also, don't know. I'm not let's only child, stop but. popularizing um, women. You know, men, they're considered powerful, and women who are direct and know what they want are called bossy. And let's get rid of that. Yeah. I'm, she, I'm not bossy. I'm the boss. She is. She And, and Tallulah, she was the boss. Mm-hmm. So like Cruella DeVille in Dodie Smith's book, Tallulah Bankhead was 
apparently a hellion in school. Uh, she was sent to a couple convents, a couple reform schools. They tried to straighten her out. Never works. Doesn't work. She gets expelled from two of those convents. Um, one for making sexual advances towards a nun. Bold. I, I would love, wish wish we had a direct quote for you on that one, but we don't. I feel like she was just doing that just to get kicked oh, out. Just, oh, prob- 100%. Yeah. 100%. The other one was for throwing ink at a nun. Remember Cruella Deville in the story for got kicked drinking, out for drinking for ink. drinking ink. Mm-hmm. Throwing ink makes more sense. Yeah. I don't know what drinking ink my does strange to you. addiction. <laughs> yeah. There was uh, there was yes. one that popped up the other day that I was watching, and this woman, it was like woman is obsessed with eating her husband, and she was just she would lick her finger, stick Ew. it in her husband's ashes, and then lick it. Absolutely not. Yep. Well, speaking of ashes, Tallulah Bankhead was known for smoking a hundred and twenty cigarettes a day. Dang. Who even has the money? I mean, obviously she does because she's an actress, but I think of all these people that just buy cigarettes upon cigarettes. It's an cigarettes. expensive way to kill I don't your, even know how much yourself. this costs, but yeah. Yeah, that's what I've always said. It's mm-hmm. an expensive way to, to kill yourself. Mm-hmm. When Tallulah Bankhead was only 15, she submitted a headshot in a contest that won her a trip to New York, which is what launched her acting career. Her father allowed her to go on the condition that she stayed away from alcohol and men. I'm not sure why he thought that that was even a possibility <laughs> based on her track record of just being kind of like rebellious. He was hoping for the best. Um, according to her biography, quote, he didn't say anything about women and cocaine. Oh, that's a fact. <laughs> so she, she didn't say anything about women and cocaine. So, Aaron, so, so apparently that was on, that was on, on the table in August, 1937 at her father's house. Uh, Bankhead married actor, John Emery, which a man she described as quote, so, so. Just so so. Nah, yeah, he's he's all right. Like Cruella, Tallulah Bankhead herself didn't make a good wife. I mean, I think if you're describing your husband as so so, you're probably you're probably not really into the married life not or really commitment or any of those type things. She told readers in her autobiography, quote, after twenty years of unbridled freedom of acting on whim, I couldn't discipline myself to the degree necessary for a satisfactory union. You got that right, Tallulah. She also told press that her um, husband was hardly satisfying on their honeymoon. Just (laughs) from the get-go. She is quoted saying, Well, darling, the weapon may be admirable proportions, but the shot is indescribably weak. Ooh. Shooting blanks. And making banks. She's just real candid. Also, um, the well, darling, because she would say Anita, darling, in the movie Cruella. So, lots of parallels. Lots, lots of them. Which, so, you remember those scenes where, where Kayla's, uh, Cruella's div- driving the really expensive car? Mm-hmm, just driving so, crazy. She's driving really fast. So, Tallulah Bank, again, she, she did this. She lived this. She would, like, launch her Bentley through the streets of London. Why not? And then would just, like, get lost because she, like, wasn't paying attention to where she was going. And she, like, was horrible at directions. Mm-hmm. And she just just blowing through London. Just living her life. Why not? She had a signature party trick that she liked to pull at all hours, at home, at work, wherever she was. The grocery store. Do you want to tell us what her party trick was? Yeah. It was quoted as saying, nudity was the most effective weapon in her arsenal of shock tactics. And basically her party trick was nude cartwheels. Um, She wouldn't wear underpants and then stripping just at the table. Why not? While they're having tea anywhere. Wouldn't recommend. Sometimes you got to. Wouldn't recommend that as a party trick Mm -hmm. for any of you guys, but But she was a very very free spirit. Mm Mm-hmm. 
She eventually died at St. Luke's Hospital in Manhattan on December 12th, 1968 at age 66, which is fairly young. Right, but you also chain smoking. Uh, yeah. day. We're not. Right. Doesn't no. bode well for you. No, the, ca- the cause of death was listed as, help me out science lady. Plural double pneumonia complicated by emphysema due to her cigarette smoking and malnutrition. Which I imagine probably has to do with the actress thing. She probably mm-hmm. wasn't, wasn't eating very well and smoking. And, I mean, so. She had, she had, a, was busy doing naked cartwheels and driving her Bentley. Uh, and apparently. And sleeping around. Yeah. Her last coherent words reportedly were a just like garbled request for uh, codeine and bourbon. There you go. One that's one way to go out. So she she was a a handful. Uh huh. And just a a note a, a weird. What is the word? I'm what is the phrase I'm looking for? A word to the wise. That's it. I knew yeah. it was some type of alliteration. She she was very just be safe because she was very free with her body and just taking all kinds of people into her bed and she had to have at a very young age a total hysterectomy because she had syphilis yikes and then they also think that that you know probably contributed to the early early death right along with 120 cigarettes a day so so disney clearly pulled that back Mm -hmm. and just made cruella an evil lady a evil two-toned haired lady dog snatcher and took out the killer promiscuity of it mm-hmm. i love that i lo- I just like Tallulah. She, she sounds like a fun gal i'm sure she was mm-hmm. maybe a little too much fun some might say yeah well cruella was you know cruella deville mm-hmm. you know devil yep cruel devil so for the true crime i just typed in <laughs> the history's most evil women and we'll see what we get on the other side of the snack break on the other side we'll see you on the other side I was wondering if you were trying to sing our snack break to the tune of Cruella DeVille. Listen, I love cereal. Same. So I've, I think we've already announced on here that mm-hmm. I'm pregnant, if you did not know. And I, I could eat cereal for every meal. I could eat cereal and I don't have anything in my womb. But here's the problem. Not a lot of cereals are very good for you. I would say most. Yeah. So they're not good for your body. They're good for your soul. Just Put it in on the snack break. Put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> So today, our snack break is brought to you by Magic Spoon. You might have heard of them. So I did. I've seen them a lot online, which is what I why I first tried them. And obviously, we love the name Magic Spoon. We talk mm-hmm. a lot about some magical stuff that happens in our stories. Magic. But they're also just their slogan got us because if you if you go and look a little bit and dig a little bit on their website, or if you get one of their boxes, it talks about they have a quote where they say, "Why did we grow up, but our cereal didn't?" Mm. it's me and they're really you know so they they took the concept and said we need an adult cereal that Mm -hmm. you know that all these cereals are chocked full of not healthy things for you and they like dug into the research of cereal and they found that uh, the average american eats 100 bowls of cereal a year and a lot of those are kids Mm -hmm. and so they found a healthier option a healthier option which I love. So they're they're bringing you the same flavor, 
but they're bringing it to you with zero sugar zero sugar with they've they've got the the healthy ingredients they've packed it full of healthy stuff and grain free low carb and they've taken out the bad stuff Mm -hmm. some of the delicious flavors you can get and they got a lot they got maple waffle cookies and cream fruity peanut butter cocoa cinnamon frosted blueberry just anything you you could want any any type of cereal that you already like they have a their version version that is 10 times better for you healthier tastier more magical go I, check them out I, cereal for breakfast cereal for lunch cereal for dinner cereal while you're podcasting cereal for snack break cereal for true crime yes go so check. go check out magic spoon you can go to magicspoon.com get you a box get you a box or four or five we 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 got four different boxes we're, so we're, we're not ashamed no shame we sh- we did it and and they're all delicious Check them out. Welcome back to the part of the show that's Lacey's part of the show. Lacey's expertise where she uses Google to find the most (laughs) interesting people. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. if, if you remember right before snack break, she said she just looked up history's most evil women you know and we had let me Cor- tell you corella deville cruel devil so she just looked up evil women and uh-huh. she found a list and this lady was on every single list i looked up and she she, made, she was a cannibal but she was also a puppy killer so she she, she makes corella deville look mild child's play Cruella. child's play mm-hmm. the and i have this picture photo. here <laughs> i always put a picture at the top of each section and the picture is a picture of Catherine Knight, and then there's an arrow to a man, and then from the man, there's an arrow down to this pot of beef stew-looking stuff. And I'll just let your mind so, take you. There's a little trailer for you right there, a little teaser for you. There you go. Gosh, we, I'm glad we didn't do beef stew for our snack break. Oh, <laughs> Catherine Knight, old gal, was born on October 24th, 1955, in the town of Aberdeen in South New Wales, Australia. Aberdeen, just a lovely little town. It is known for its slaughterhouses and meat industry. So we will not be putting that on our bucket list of places to visit. Doesn't sound like my type of place. Catherine's mother, Barbara, had an affair with a man named Ken Knight, and thus Catherine and her twin sibling, Joy, were brought into the world. Knight's father, Ken, was an alcoholic who openly used violence and intimidation to rape Catherine's mother up to 10 times a day. And Barbara, in turn, often told her daughters intimate details of her sex life with Ken and how much she hated sex and men. Yikes. I mean, you can, you know, you and your mom, as you grow older, you build a certain type of relationship. But as children, you don't. That is not something you share with them. Yeah. Later, when Catherine complained to her mother that one of her partners wanted to her to do things that she wasn't comfortable with, Barbara told her, quote, to put up with it and stop complaining. Because what are we nope. if we're not just here to serve men? Nope, Barbara, that was bad advice. Catherine said that she was frequently sexually abused by family members until she was 11 years old, which is sadly common i feel like in every single one of these stories that we tell Catherine attended muswell brook high school where she was known as a bully she had assaulted at least one boy at the school with a weapon and one time she was injured by a teacher and the teacher 
injured Catherine in self-defense because I guess Catherine was trying to attack this teacher. So she just bold. She's not drinking ink. No, but she's out there assaulting people. Yeah. I I wish somebody would have sent Catherine to a nunnery. She probably need to go to Mm -hmm. reform school. Yeah. Catherine and her twin sister Joy were also known just to beat the crap out of each other at all times. And Joy was also a bully. So we just raised two shining stars. The irony is Mm -hmm. that Joy's name is Joy. Joy. Yeah. Catherine dropped out of school at 15. And at this point, she had not yet learned to read or write. But this wasn't super weird for the area because many kids dropped out of school so they could join the meat industry. Go to meat town. Don't say that. (laughs) Meat city. Not that either. No? Okay. (laughs) At first, she was able to get a job in a clothing factory where she cut up clothing. But in 1974, at the age of 18, old Catherine, she got her dream job at the slaughterhouse. Nope. Every 18-year-old girl's mm-hmm. dream. Workers there remembered Catherine said she loved to go to the front of the assembly line, which is where they would slaughter the pigs. She wanted a front row seat. And with her passion for slaughtering, Catherine quickly climbed the ranks and was promoted to the person that got to kill the pigs. And her co-workers later said that instead of, you know, slitting their throats and killing them slowly she would prick an artery and then let them bleed out slowly you know i'm starting to think that we've we've got the order of these our episodes backwards because Mm -hmm. we talk about really really gross stuff after Mm -hmm. we've eaten something yep yep you just keep that coffee down that's not the the order you want to do not coffee cereal cereal but i did have a cup of coffee before this too because we're what we need to do what we do and a dairy queen blizzard but what are you going to do? We love snacks. Mm-hmm. She was given, Catherine was given her own set of butcher knives, which she hung over her bed. Um, she said she placed them there, quote, in case she ever needed them. And uh, Why? side note, I had this very large butcher knife that I keep in the car with me. That's di- I feel like that's different than your bed. Because I'm again, scared of guns. But but again, if she was ab- like sexually abused growing up, mm-hmm. that would be her her bedroom would be a place where she would probably feel fearful true 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 which is sad but it's also creepy but it is we're gonna keep going this is a routine that she would continue until she was arrested she always slept with these butcher knives above her bed they were her pride and joy Catherine eventually fell in love with fellow slaughterhouse employee david stanford kellett in 1973 David was also an alcoholic, and he frequently got into fights, which Catherine loved. She loved coming to his defense with her fist. She loved getting in these fights. And Catherine married David in 1974, and at her request, they pulled up to the service on Catherine's motorcycle, and David was very intoxicated, which you probably would have to be to marry Catherine. Starting off strong. At the service, Barbara, Catherine's mother, gave David some advice. You know, she said, quote, you better watch this one or she'll effing kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're effed. Don't ever think of playing up on her. She'll effing kill you. What? Thanks, Barbara. What What advice? What advice? Not cherish each other forever. Don't go to med mad. Just yeah. listen, David. Just don't, she's gonna don't effing, mess with her. She's going to stick one of those butcher knives straight she'll, through your eyeball. Or your artery, like, mm-hmm. like the pigs at the slaughterhouse. Mm-hmm. On their wedding night, just plot, just 
quick and so quickly. I can't. I'd... Quick and so quickly is literally what I just said. That was, that's the blizzard talking. Uh, Everything escalates quickly is what I meant to say. And on their wedding night, David woke up to Catherine, strangling him and punching him in the face. And she later explained that she was angry because they had only had sex three times when she knew for a fact that her mother and father had done it five times on their wedding night. She's got some problems. Problems. Yep. Big ones. You And it just keeps getting worse and worse. Yeah. yeah that, I know. I'm, yeah. They would eventually have two children together. And you'll see later on just the fact that these type people just keep procreating. Just lock it up. Yeah. Lock it up, Catherine. Their relationship was very abusive with Catherine being the abuser. One time when she was pregnant, she lit all of David's clothes on fire and then beat him over the head with a frying pan. She just straight up Rapunzel'd it. <laughs> yep. Just big old frying pan. If you don't know what we're talking about, G- check out the Rapunzel, Rapunzel episode. She was mad because David had come home late from a darts competition and after she beat him, he was able to make it to the neighbor's yard where he collapsed. He was then taken to the hospital where it was found that he had a very bad skull fracture because she got him. Gets you an iron fry pen to the head. Police wanted to charge Catherine, but David dropped the charges because after this, Catherine was, quote, on her best behavior. I can only imagine what is good behavior for her, like knowing what her normal behavior is. Just what, not trying to assault you with a weapon. Right. <laughs> Another time, David woke up with Catherine straddling him with a knife to his neck, just laughing about how easy it would be to kill him. And David stated, quote, I never raised a finger against her, not even in self-defense. I would just walk away. Good on you, David. Uh, seriously. In May of 1976, shortly after the birth of their first child, Melissa... David left Catherine for another woman and moved to Queensland. Can't can't say I don't blame him. Mm-hmm. But remember, they have a second I, child. That's what I was just about to say, but there's two kids. Shortly after this, Catherine lost her mind. She literally lost her mind, and she was found pushing the baby in a stroller down the str- street, violently swinging the carriage side to side, crashing it into walls, fences, poles. She was Doing essentially to the stroller what Cruella Deville does to, to her the car, car, to Lula Bankhead does to her Bentley. Because of this, she was admitted to St. Elmo's Hospital, where she was diagnosed with postpartum depression and spent several weeks recovering. That sounds like a little more than I, postpartum I was, I was depression. Just, I was to me, just but. about to say the same thing. Mm-hmm. I was like, I think that's that. There's more, and to we'll that. see. We'll see. This child, Melissa, she went through it. Well, yeah. If she Almost more so than anyone else in the story. If she didn't have a concussion after that little mm-hmm. trip in the carriage. It also reminds me of the episode of The Office where Jan, they're giving Jan a baby shower at the office and somebody gets her stroller and Dwight takes it out into the parking lot and is trying to prove that it's not indestructible. So she both Rapunzel'd it and she shrewded and it. she shrewded Straight up shrewded it. <laughs> after being released from the hospital, Catherine placed two-month-old Melissa on a railway line shortly before the train was due. And then she stole an axe and went into town and threatened to kill several people. I told you, we're on a roll, this Catherine. I have no words. Luckily, a man known in the district as Old Ted, uh, he just kind of sounded like a forager, a homeless person, he was near the railway line and rescued Melissa. And by all accounts, that was only minutes before the train was going to pass. Knight was arrested, and again, they took her back to St. Elmo's Hospital, because apparently they cured her before, and she recovered, quote-unquote, recovered, signed herself out the following day. 
and her child was given back to her. I don't know what they do in Australia. Lots of questions mm-hmm. about that. Yeah, I have. Hey, we know you left your kid on a train track. We know yesterday. You, we know you shrewded her. Yeah, and then we know. And you, then you left her on the train tracks. And then you got an axe. And, and then went you got out a- and tried to kill people. But here's your baby. Here's your baby back. Poor Melissa. A few days later, Knight slashed the face of a woman with one of her knives, and demanded. Kind of held her at knife point and demanded that this woman drive her to Queensland to find David. The woman escaped after they stopped at a service station, but by the time police arrived, Catherine had taken this little boy hostage and was threatening to kill him with a knife. She was disarmed when the police <laughs> police attacked her with brooms. <laughs> you have to ask David what? about that. What? And she was admitted to the Morissette Psychiatric Hospital. There, Knight told nurses that she had intended to kill the mechanic at the service station because he had helped repair David's car, which in turn allowed David to leave and go to Queensland. Um, And then she said that she intended to kill David and his mother when she arrived in Queensland. When police informed David of the incident, he left his girlfriend and he and his mother both went back to Aberdeen to support Catherine. What? Catherine must have been good. You know what I mean? Good at some uh, things. He couldn't get enough of her. I just like how the police could like... I'm trying to imagine that scenario where they inform him of what happened. He's that his reaction is, let me go help her out. Mm-hmm. Oh, she wants to kill me. Sweet. Let's get, let's get in the back. car. Pack up the bags. Yeah. Catherine was released from the hospital on August 9th, 1976. And he, she was released into the care of her mother-in-law along with David. And they moved to Woodridge, which was a suburb of Brisbane. And this is where she obtained a job at the Denmore Meatworks in nearby Ipswich. Because all we all know, the only thing that Catherine needs is another knife. And yeah, how is she getting jobs that involve knives and culin- torture, culinary and weapons? Death. Yeah. On March 6, nineteen eighty, they had another daughter, Natasha Marie. And in 1984, despite all that David had done for her. Knight left him and moved in first with her parents in Aberdeen and then rented a house in nearby Muswellbrook. Can I can't believe she's the one that left him. Yep. I mean, like he left her, but mm-hmm. came back. But and she went through all like, that trouble, did all those things to, get, to him get him back, and then she was like, "No, I'm good." She needs she needs action in her life. Yeah. She needs drama. Well, she's got it. Mm-hmm. Although she returned to work at the slaughterhouse, she injured her back, which a lot of people thought she did this intentionally. And the following year, she went on disability pension. No longer needing to rent accommodation close to her work, the government gave her a housing commission house in Aberdeen. Um, (laughs) Sure. This this woman that has done all these things, give her a house. Catherine met 38-year-old David Saunders. Different David. Mm Mm-hmm. In 1986, and everyone that knew David said that he was a kind and polite gentleman, and he especially loved dogs. Nope. Yeah. But I don't want to... I don't want to... Poor David. Poor dogs. A few months later, he moved in with her and her two daughters. Catherine was a very jealous person and often got mad at David, questioning him about what he did when she wasn't around, and he would move back to his apartment when they would get in arguments, but he would always end back with Kat. She has this, she has this thing. She must have this very persuasiveness about her. Yeah. She just must be, you know, has, has the goods. You know what I'm saying? In May of 1987, after an argument, Catherine stormed outside and 
slit the throat of David's eight-week-old dingo pup. And he would later testify that this is the worst thing that she could have ever done to him. And we'll find out. She does a lot of horrible things to him, but this was the worst. And that would have been the worst thing for me, too. Also, the fact that you have a freaking dingo pup. That's adorable. In the Did he, so, so had he not heard, I mean, I guess he had not heard anything about You'll her. You'll see like, that, like, all these people, they, yeah, they had heard, but she, I told you, she's just good in the sack. She has such a track record, and it's like, how, how does that, d- this rap sheet not deter people? I don't know. I don't know. Mind-blowing. She, so, like I said, she did a lot of horrible things to David. One of, she, she went back to the frying pan, and Rapun- he, Rapunzel did yeah. again. David would frequently show up to work with cuts and bruises all over him. And at one point, she even broke several of his ribs. But I imagine people like that, like men go to work and are bruised. And people attribute that to other things. Because it's not a lot of times that women are the the aggressors. Yeah. In June of 1988, she gave birth to her third daughter, Sarah, which prompted David to put a deposit on a house. Which Knight paid off when her workers' comp came through in 1989. Look, you're, you're... Too hurt to be able to work, but you're not hurt enough to sling be around swinging, a fly, swinging pans, a frying pan, at right, heads. and getting on top of people and strangling them and breaking all their kinds ribs. of stuff. Catherine decorated the house, and um, she she didn't go to Home Goods or TJ Maxx. She just decorated it with animal skins, skulls, horns, rusty animal traps, leather jackets, old boots, machetes, rakes, pitchforks. I just imagine like a Cracker Barrel of horror. Yeah, not not like mm-hmm. a homey Cracker Barrel. Also, a great, scary one. great space for those three children. Oh, perfect. Mm-hmm. One night, Catherine hit David in the face with an iron and then stabbed him in his stomach with a pair of scissors. At this point, he moved back to his, moves back to his apartment, and when he does this, he finds that Catherine had been there and cut up all of his clothes. <laughs> Probably with the scissors that she stabbed him in the more, stomach with. Uh, right. I'd be more concerned about the stabbing in the stomach. At this point, David took a long work leave and went into hiding. Catherine tried to find him, but no one admitted to knowing where he was. And several months later, he returned to see his daughter and found that Catherine had gone to the police and told them she was afraid of him. Just the irony. I can't. And they issued her with an AVO or an apprehended violence order, which is, you know, just sounds like a restraining order. Why they would do this when they have all this That's what I'm past saying. history on her. That's head. what I'm saying. She gets away with so much. Catherine was, wasn't just known for being abusive to her lovers, but she was also very abusive to her children. Sometimes it was said that she would punch them straight in the face. One night she found Melissa, her oldest daughter, out drinking at a bar, which, Melissa, girl, you deserve that drink. Yeah, seriously. I'm not even mad. For whatever reason, she Ma- Catherine finds Melissa at the bar, walks up to her, grabs her by the head, bashes her head on the table, and then drags her out of the bar by her, ha- by her hair. She then takes her to the car and slams Melissa's head in between the car door before throwing her into the passenger seat. I don't know what happened when they get home, but to this day, for whatever reason, and I think this is just how abuse works, Catherine's children, including Melissa, support their mother. I know you guys can't see me because this is a podcast, but I'm just shaking my head the whole time. This is the craziest. We haven't even gotten to beef stew. Yeah. <laughs> beef stew's coming up. Hi, in, yay, yay. in 1990, 
Catherine became pregnant by a 43-year-old former slaughterhouse co-worker, John Chillingworth. And um, they gave birth the following year to a boy named Eric. And their relationship lasted three years before she left him for a man that she had been having an affair with. And this man's name is John Price. Poor, poor John Price. Oh, here we go. John Price, also known as Pricey, was the father of three children when Knight had an affair with him. Reportedly, he was, quote, a terrific bloke, and he was liked by everyone that knew him, and his own marriage had ended in 1988. While his two-year-old daughter had remained with his former wife, the two older children lived with him and Catherine. And despite John being well aware of Catherine's violent reputation, they moved in with each other. Uh, Again, shaking my head, throwing my arms up. I don't understand. (laughs) Everyone's like, oh, the guy was so nice. He was a terrific guy. He loved puppies. He loved puppies. He loved his kids. Yeah. Dates Catherine. It's Catherine, though. Price was not officially divorced from his previous wife, Colleen, who he had a good relationship with. They were co-parenting great. And as I can imagine, Catherine did not like this. And one day they got in a fight over his refusal to marry her. Um, she had actually went, Catherine went and bought her own engagement ring and was like, That sounds about right. You're, you're going to marry me? I wonder what ca- engagement ring Catherine would have picked out for herself. I'd, probably a sharp one a, that she a could human tooth. punch people in the face with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or that. And in retaliation, Catherine videotaped items that John had stolen from work and sent them the tapes to his boss. What's sad is these items were out-of-date medical kits that he had dug out of the trash can. So, like, literally something you threw away as trash, and he was fired, even though that he had worked there for 17 years. And, and even though she's known for slamming her kid's head mm-hmm. indoors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That same day, John kicked her out, and she returned to her own home, while news of what she had done started to spread through the town. A few months later, John restarted his relationship with her, although he now refused to allow her to move in with him. And the fighting became even more frequent, and most of his friends were sick of it at this point, and they were like, we're, we're done with you until you end things with her. We, we can't watch you burn, you know? Oh, yeah, like self-sabotage. So moving on to the finale of the, the story. The beef, the beef stew. Oh. The full Monty. In February 2000, a series of assaults on John culminated with Catherine stabbing him in the chest. And finally fed up, he kicked her out of the house. For some reason, I have his name interchanged with David, but that's because I got confused. She, she dated a couple Davids, a mm-hmm. couple Johns. So she she also stabbed him in the, the house, and that was apparent. I mean, in the house, in the chest, and that was apparently the final straw. So he kicked her out. On February 29th, he stopped at the Scone Magistrate's Court on his way back from work and took out a restraining order to keep her away from both him and his children. That afternoon, John told his co-workers that if he had not come, if he didn't come to work the next day, it was because Catherine killed him. And they pleaded with him not to go home, but he told them that he believed he would, she would kill his children if he didn't go home. Yeah. Yeah. I would have Accurate. Thought, same. I would have thought the same thing. John arrived to find that Catherine, although not there herself, had sent the children away for a sleepover at a friend's house. He then spent the evening with his neighbors before going to bed at 11 p.m. Earlier that day, 
Catherine had bought new black lingerie. She, <laughs> she also went to Natasha, which is her second daughter's house, where she filmed herself playing with Natasha's children. And in the video, she states, I love all of my children. I hope to see you all again. Which, at the time, was kind of weird. But knowing what happens, it's really weird. Catherine later went to John's house, and while he was sleeping, she sat and watched TV for a few minutes before getting in the shower. She then woke up John, and they had sex, and then he fell asleep. And as he slept, Catherine took out her knife and stabbed him 37 times. According to blood evidence, John woke up and tried to turn on the light before attempting to escape while Catherine chased him through the house. He managed to reach the front door and get outside, but either stumbled back inside or was dragged back into the hallway where he finally died after bleeding out. Later, they found out that Catherine went into Aberdeen and withdrew $1,000 from Price's ATM account. Several af hours after he died, Catherine skinned his entire body oh, in great. one piece. Here we go. <laughs> the skin was then hung up on a meat hook at the entrance of the house. She then decapitated him and cooked parts of his body, serving up the meat with baked potato, pumpkin, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash, and gravy, and put it in two settings at the dinner table, along with notes beside each plate, each having the name of one of Price's children on it. Ew. He, she was preparing to serve John's body parts to his children. Ew. Yeah. She also left a handwritten note on a picture of John in the middle of the table, and uh, it's really perverted and gross, so I don't want to read it. But um, it basically says, like, here, play with John now. Eat, Ew. With, eat John. Yep. A third meal they found, investigators found, was thrown on the back lawn for unknown reasons, although they assumed that Catherine had tried to eat the meal but couldn't and threw it out. John's head was found in a pot with vegetables, and the pot was still warm when they arrived, estimated to be between 40 and 50 degrees Celsius, indicating that the cooking had taken place early in the morning. So I'm assuming her. I'm assuming the kids didn't actually eat the. No, no, no. They were. She sent thank, them away on the. Thank goodness. Slumber party or whatever. Sometime later, Catherine arranged the body with the left arm draped over an empty soft drink bottle and his legs crossed. Okay. At 6 a.m. the next morning, the neighbor came became concerned that Price's car was still in the driveway, and when Price did not arrive at work, his employer sent a worker to see what was wrong. Both the neighbor and the worker tried knocking on Price's bedroom window to wake him, but after noticing blood on the door, they alerted the police, who arrived at 8 a.m. The police broke down the back door and found his body, and they found Catherine comatose from taking a large number, number of pills. Com comatose, but not dead. Nope. Catherine was obviously arrested, and her initial offer to plead guilty to manslaughter was rejected, and she was charged on February 2, 2001, on the charge of murdering John, to which she entered the plea of not guilty, because she's a psycho. I have no words. Her trial was initially fixed for July 23, 2001, but it was adjourned due to the jury's, there was a jury member that had an illness, and it was refixed for October 15th. When the trial commenced, Justice Barry O'Keefe offered the 60-person jury prospects the option of being excused due to the nature of the photographic evidence he knew that they were going to have to review. Five accepted this offer, and then later on, several more members of the jury dropped out. That I think that would be me. Mm -hmm. they, they said beef stew, and they were like, nope. Nope, can't do it. 
Catherine eventually changed her plea to guilty and the jury was dismissed. The judge had adjourned the trial and then ordered a psychiatric assessment overnight to determine if Catherine understood the consequences of a guilty plea and was fit to make such a plea. It's like she knew how to skin a body and and cook human body stew, so... It doesn't, yeah, she's fine. She understands. Yeah, she, she knew how to flay a body. Catherine's legal team had planned to defend Catherine by claiming amnesia and disassociation, which a lot of psychiatrists said, yeah, she, she disassociated, but, but she she's, still did she's it. insane. But she's I mean, she, but she's sane, yeah. No reason has ever been given for why she gave the guilty plea, and despite giving it, Catherine still refuses to accept responsibility for her actions because that's the type of person we are at the sentencing hearing Catherine's lawyers requested that Knight be excused to avoid hearing some of the facts but this was refused no no Mm -hmm. you need to sit and listen to what you did i mean you did it yeah that was worse than probably hearing it so yeah when Dr. Timothy Lyons took the stand and described the skinning and decapitation, Catherine became hysterical and had to be excused and sedated. Don't play, Catherine. We no. know we know what you're into. On November 8th, Justice O'Keefe pointed out that the nature of the crime and Catherine's lack of remorse required a severe penalty, and he sentenced her to life imprisonment, and he refused to fix a non-parole period and ordered that her papers be marked, quote, never to be released and this was the first time that this ever happened to a woman in australian history so the first time a woman got life in prison without the possibility of parole which seems fitting it does it seems fitting for this in june 2006 Catherine appealed the life sentence claiming that a penalty of life in jail without the possibility of parole was too severe for the killing No. Let us review, Catherine. You couldn't even sit down and listen to what you had done because it was so severe. So the appeal was dismissed and the the judge or justice at this time wrote, this was an appalling crime, almost beyond contemplation in a civilized society. Yeah, this is like some caveman type. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do know what you're saying. Catherine now spends her time at Silverwater's Correctional Center. She is noted known to, quote, rule the prison. She is also known as the Nana because she is thought of as a peacemaker and she tries to pull young girls in and convince them to stop fighting and be good little prison girls. She's She's got some sort of she's persuasive, a of all manipulative traits. power. If, she does. Like, she's got some sort of control over people that yeah. I do not understand. This author, James Felt, wrote a book green is the new black and he kind of goes over what Catherine's life is like now and he quotes he said quote a typical day for night starts at 7 a.m every morning when she wakes up to go to one of the most tedious jobs in the prison she makes headphones she's stuck in a factory every day from 8 to 1 p.m making headphones on a big loud machine but it's said that she is one of the best workers and she makes the one of the highest wages in the prison and quote, she gets through more work than anyone. She enjoys her job and takes pride in what she does. Four guards flank her and they watch her every move and are with her every day. And I just hate the fact that she's sitting there enjoying making those little headphones and just enjoying her life. Yeah. After Catherine finishes her day at the headphone factory, she eats lunch before retiring to her cell. And that is where Catherine, beef stew lady, is going to spend the rest of her days. Still Can't, just shaking my speechless. head. Speechless. One of the wildest stories I have ever heard. Yeah. Uh, Worse than Cruella. 
way way Cruella seems just chummy compared Mm. to that chummy like that was nothing Mm, we're never gonna eat beef stew again it wasn't even beef stew it was like john stew oh yikes well if you like that story and you want to learn more things like it you can head on over to our instagram We'll we'll post the photo that she was telling you about Post some recipes for beef stew. Nope, we won't do Human that. Human free. Golly. <laughs> I need a bowl of cereal. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll be back. We will. We'll, we'll bring you some more fairy tales. We'll bring you some more true crime. We'll bring you some more snacks. We won't bring you any beef stew. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. But if there's a beef stew company out there and you want to sponsor us, then we'll do it. it. We'll, we'll yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it. Do it for the gram. Have a have a great week. See you next time.